You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we will stand all right. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray now that you would come to us, your people, you are king. We need you. We need you in this moment. We need you uh, this evening. We need you every hour. We need your righteousness, your kindness, and your grace. And we pray that you would give us wisdom now from your word as we come to it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. Hey. Uh, I love this time of year. I uh, love singing these songs with you all, seeing all the wreaths and everything. Uh, it's so great. Um, a couple weeks ago, Marcy and I were really excited that the sixth and final season of The Crown had recently been released. Uh, this isn't like a blanket endorsement of that show. Uh, there are some parts that should definitely be fast-forwarded through and uh, definitely needs a historian's more deliberate care rather than just kind of playing fast and loose with history for good TV. But here's the funny part of this, uh, why I'm telling you this. Uh, we watched the first episode of the new season and it was back set in the 1950s. We thought, oh, for this last season, they're going to like uh, this like huge, long, decades-long biopic of Queen Elizabeth II. They're going to go back and give like an episode or two to each of the actors who played the queen, and we watched that episode, a story that kind of felt familiar and that we thought we'd already seen and that they already covered, and then so we watched the next one a couple nights later, and, and another episode set in the 50s. And I was like, how many episodes are in this season? Uh, and then I went to see uh, how many were in new, the new season six, and there's only four episodes in season six, and we had just been watching like random episodes from season one again, and we didn't even realize it. Uh, before you think that we're just like complete morons, like season one was in 2016, so it was like seven years ago. So you'll maybe give me a little bit of grace for not remembering the things and the ins and outs of the episodes we'd already seen. Uh, But this show has, since 2016, has always been just huge. Uh, Despite its huge budget, it essentially just kind of prints money for Netflix. Americans love it. Uh, Brits mostly love it. Season five was the number one most watched thing on Netflix in 37 countries, including the UK, the US, Canada, Australia, Germany, Italy, and France. And it was in the top 10 for 51 more countries. Uh, Even though Elizabeth II was not our sovereign, our queen, we Americans, we, we love stories about her. We love stories about Diana. We love just all of the gossip tabloids of all of the royal family in England. And I don't think it's just because we're Americans and we've got some long history with England or something, but I think because we're human. 
Again, the whole world wanted to see these stories about this particular queen in the royal family. All humans love stories about the rich, the powerful, the famous. We like them because of curiosity. Like, what would life be like for people like that? who are so powerful and wealthy. And then when we see the rich, when we see the famous, we see the powerful struggle through perhaps the same kinds of family drama that we struggle through, the same kind of job or meaning of life crises. It kind of like psychologically levels the playing field for we humans. We're like, hey, if they struggle through the same things that I struggle with, well, that's interesting. And while it may not seem like it at first, Psalm 20 that you just heard Joe read is all about royalty. It is all about God's king. In fact, it's where the English get the, like people from England, get the phrase of their national anthem, God save the king. If you have your Bibles open, uh, look at that verse 9 of verse 20. It says, O Lord, in our English Bibles, but O Lord, save the king. God save the king. You may be thinking like, hey man, like this is Advent. We just sang all of these quaint and great little Christmas songs. I'm here for like the shepherds and the wise men. Maybe not a psalm like this, but these psalms that we're about to work through over the next four Sundays, Psalm 20, 21, 22, and then culminating with Psalm 23 that we used for our profession of faith this evening on Christmas Eve. We're going to get to that on Christmas Eve. These are wonderful Christmas psalms. They are wonderful Christmas prayers. This week and the next are about confident expectation for the king and of his coming success. Psalm 22 is about the king's experienced disappointment and yet his confident trust in the promises of God. And then Psalm 23 is about the goodness and the presence of the God who is with us, Emmanuel. I can't wait to get through these psalms to perhaps cultivate even more growing expectation for the coming king. So we're going to think about Psalm 20 tonight under two headings. If this psalm actually is about God's king, we're going to think first about Psalm 20 in its original context and considering the success of Israel's kings, kings like David and all of his successors. But then we'll consider Psalm 20's place within the context of the rest of the Bible by considering the success of Israel's singular king. So the success of Israel's kings and then the success of Israel's king. So first of all, before we get into the meat of Psalm 1, let's spend just a minute on what the Psalms are. This isn't a comprehensive introduction tonight, but at its most basic level, the Psalms are just ancient Hebrew poetry. They're prayers. They're often corporate songs meant to be sung by many people or even nationally. Meaning, just like we read poetry or we read song lyrics different than we read a novel of fiction or we read a psalm or a song or a poem differently than we read a blog post. We ought to have different like antennae up, thinking differently, working when we read the Psalms or the Proverbs or something like Song of Solomon, these works of poetry. We use different tools when we read them than when we're reading something like Joshua or Romans or Luke or something. The language of poetry is meant to be read, reread, 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 and then like emotionally get down deep in within us. You might think of poetry like listening to a radio theater production of a play rather than seeing that same play on stage. The stage version is playing out audibly, but also visibly, while the radio theater only gives you the audio, leaving the rest of it kind of up to your imagination. 
Like Shakespeare could have written in one of his sonnets, he could have written, hey, I think you're real pretty. Instead, he said, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Like that does something in our imaginations that just some compliment might not. When reading the Psalms, our imaginations are meant to be activated, not just to be read once and then learn some bit of like theological knowledge and then move along with our day, but to be explored around in. So what's happening in this Psalm? What can we explore around in in Psalm 20? At first, this seems like, hey, this really is an awesome Christmas Psalm. It kind of seems like We've written our Christmas wish lists to Santa Claus, and here are all the Bible verses to make it happen. Verse 1, may the Lord answer. Verse 4, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May, he, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Yes, sir. I would like a PS5 and an electric train set and a Barbie mansion and a new car and a vacation to Costa Rica. Please and thank you. But what's going on? Who is praying these psalms of blessing and for whom? Because of all the yous here, do you see all these, the times that the, our English Bible include this word you, may, he, may the Lord answer you in a day of trouble, because all these yous are singular and not plural, meaning the writer of this psalm does not say, may the Lord answer y'all, but you, an individual person, And because of the way that the second half of this psalm turns its focus on Israel's king, most scholars think that the first half of this song, or this psalm, is a corporate or even national song that the people of Israel would sing and pray for, for the king, before he went out to battle. Now when you and I read this psalm and immediately assume that we're the main character of all of reality, because that's what we do as Americans, we immediately make the first five verses of Psalm 20 about our Christmas lists and assume that God really, really does want to grant all of our wishes and all of our heart's desires. But if we read a little bit more carefully, this is actually a war psalm. There is a day of trouble in which someone and even the nation needs protection. Verse 5 is talking about banners. These are war banners, like big flags that signal victory over the battlefield, which then even clarifies the kind of salvation that just before that, verse 5, that we may shout for joy over your salvation. This is battlefield salvation. And then, of course, the chariots and the horses there at the end, which we'll come back to in a few minutes. So this psalm is the people praying for the success of the king before he goes out to war. Before the king goes out to the war, to war, may God answer the king. May he protect the king. May he send help for the king and support the king. May he remember the king. May he grant the king's desires and fulfill all of his plans. I just, in just saying those few phrases there, we just zoomed right through verses one through five, but let's look a little bit more slowly at what the people are asking for. They say in verse one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. These all caps word of Lord in our English Bible or our translator's way of signifying the covenant name of God, Yahweh. I am that God revealed his name to be to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Remember when we went through that book several years ago, we perhaps translated the word I am or Yahweh to be God revealing his name to Moses to be something like I am and will continue to be what I am and will forever be. I am who I always have been and always will be. Everything that is good comes from me. I am dependent on no one and I give of myself to you. So 
The people are praying that the covenant God who led Israel out of slavery in the book of Exodus, may he answer you, O king, like he did the people in the past. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. That sounds like a weird thing to say, right? Like, why not just say, may the God of Jacob protect you? Saying, may the name of the God of Jacob sounds a little like magic-y, doesn't it? Kind of like a incantation or something. But again, back to Exodus, back in 2019, when we went through the Ten Commandments and thought about the third commandment of not taking the Lord's name in vain, we thought about how that is so much more than not just saying OMG, though that is certainly part of it. Throughout the Bible, the name of the Lord is almost like a personified stand-in for God's presence. Our names are important to us as Western moderns, And it's embarrassing when we call someone the wrong name. It's kind of frustrating when someone calls us the wrong name or like spells our name incorrectly or something. But names are kind of just labels for us, something we have, not necessarily something that we are. But a Hebrew understanding of a name expresses a person's identity, a person's reputation. God's name represents not just the identity of God, but his entire reputation, his entire identity in person. Kind of like how we might say that our reputation, about our reputations, hey, your name is worth more than gold. Have you ever heard this or used this? Your name, who you are, is worth more than gold. If or when people hear your name and they expect good and hard, honest work, they'll trust you. And so they'll, they'll hire you to do good, honest work. But if they don't, If they don't trust your name, they won't hire you. And so Psalm 8, David writes in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God's name, his identity, his reputation is filling the earth. How majestic is God's name? Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Not just God, but his name, his, his entire reputation and presence is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Or as we often sing from Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is within me. Bless what? Bless his holy name. His identity, his deepest identity, his reputation, all that is God, bless his holy name. The story of the Bible is about the divine name filling the entire earth, the name and fame of God. In fact, that's what Jesus tells us should be one of our most fervent and regular prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That your name, who you are, your identity, your reputation, your presence, everything that you are, your name and fame, may that be known and honored and be made even more uh, praiseworthy and worshipped amongst all people as it is in heaven. So in the third commandment, God tells his people not to bear or carry that name, the thing That is one of the most fundamental markers and pointers of God's character, his identity, his reputation. Do not bear or carry that name lightly, flippantly, carelessly, meaninglessly. And so, back to Psalm 20, may the name of the Lord, or may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the full weight, may the reputation, may the person, the identity of the God who covenanted with Jacob to bless and protect him, also bless and protect you. He's a God of faithfulness. So the people keep praying in verse 2, may he send you help 
from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May God send help from the place of his own presence, his footstool, his footstool where he dwells in the midst of his people in the tabernacle. The sanctuary is like the, the connection overlapping place of different realms of heaven and earth. God amongst his people. May God send help from there and support you from Zion, Jerusalem, the place of the temple mount of his presence. May the power and the victory of the Lord like flow downhill from Mount Zion to all of his people. Verse three, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Before the king went out to battle, he would make offerings and sacrifices to atone both for his individual sin and for the nation's sin. So the people are praying, may God not remember sin, but may God remember holiness. May God remember righteousness because of sacrifice. And then we might summarize verses four through six as Godspeed. O king, Godspeed. May he grant you speed. May he grant you victory. May he grant you success. Verse four, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all of your battlefield plans. Godspeed. Verse 5, may we shout for joy over your battlefield salvation. In the name of our Lord God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all of your petitions. Godspeed, O King, as you go out before us. It seems then, after the people have sung this song, this prayer before the king, the king himself then responds about himself with the only first-person singular pronouns in the psalm. You see this in verse 6? Now I... The, the speaker seems to have changed. Now, I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Again, through Exodus and Joshua, God's right hand were symbolic military metaphors, often for people themselves, for Moses, for Joshua. They became extensions of God's power and victory. And so the king is to respond to the people, to the prayer of the people, because of their prayer for him, for his obedience to the Lord, because of God's faithfulness to his promises, verse 6, the king says, now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, saves his anointed. Or literally, verse 6, now I know that the Lord saves his Messiah. The one sent to rule over God's people, to save God's people. God acts through his anointed, his Messiah, to bring success to his people. Because here's the thing about kings. Here's the thing about God's anointed ones, his messiahs in the Old Testament. When God gives victory to the king, he gives victory to the people. If the king experiences military success, then the people experience the benefits of that success. And yet the people are to remember that it's not just because they have better resources than their enemy neighbors. It's not just because they are like particularly like strategic military geniuses or something. The people then respond in verse 7, they say, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They, the nations, collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. So they're saying, hey, we're going to remember. We're going to remember past times in our nation's history. We're going to remember the chariots of Egypt that were thrown in the Red Sea. We're going to remember the chariots of the northern armies in Joshua 11. Like when you read the word chariots, do you remember this from several months ago when we were in the book of Joshua? When you read that word, this chariot word, it should be like, uh-oh. Like the armies with the tanks and the F-16s have just showed up to the battlefield. We're toast. But the people of Israel, who had always been outnumbered, who had always been outmanned, who had always been overwhelmed, say, no, it is not the strength of the people of God, but it is the strength of the God of the people who will win the day. 
who will save us. The name of the Lord our God, his identity, his person, his presence is the one who brings us victory. Not the resources, not the intelligence, not the power of the people. Just like David before Goliath, where David before the giant says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. When the anointed one goes out before the people fighting on their behalf, full of trust and faith in the goodness and the power of God, the people just kind of walk in glory behind him in his wake. Whatever he does before them, they get to experience. The success of the king brings success to the people, and they get to experience and receive all of the benefits of his victory. And so the people say in verse 9, O Lord, O Yahweh, save the king. When God saves the king, he saves us. Which is the exact sentiment that Britons, people in Britain, have sung and meant about their monarch for centuries. They're saying, when our king or queen has victory or success, we have victory or success. So they sing, send him victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the king. If God saves the king, God saves us we get to experience the benefits of his or her success. But here's the thing about English kings, English queens. Even when they, the kings or queens are people that most of the nation actually likes, and people, here's a little secret, most people don't like any English kings. It's only the queens, Elizabeth I, Victoria, Elizabeth II. Most of the kings are forgettable. But even with the queens that most people really, really like, they just actually can't do or be what the people want them to be, of what God wants them to be. Even the kings of Israel, the anointed ones, the messiahs of Israel could never be what they were meant to be. In Lamentations 4, the people talk about living under the shadow of the Lord's anointed to live under the shadow of the Messiah, like this divine protector. In Psalm 84, the people pray, behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. They're saying if the king has success, he very much does act like a shield for his people. As goes the king, so go the people. His victory means their victory. His failure means their failure. And the long and miserable history of the kings of Israel is a failure after failure, after failure, after failure. Moral failure, spiritual failure, failure to fear the Lord, failure to obey the Lord, failure to worship the Lord, failure to lead the people in all of these things, which then led to the moral and spiritual failure of the people, where the people didn't care about what they should care about or love the things that should be loved. And so following the first king of humanity, Adam, David, Solomon, and all their future generations of sons increasingly reject God, and the people like Adam were again sent away out into exile to the east, out of the land of God's presence to live and to wander alone in exile. And this is where Israel finds itself. Where many centuries and many generations after Psalm 20 is written, the line of David has dried up and the throne sits empty. The failure of the kings of Israel has brought failure for the people. There was no victory. There was no success. The people were praying. The people were living. The people were singing not songs like Psalm 20. 
Because how can you sing a song like Psalm 20 if there is no king? If there is no king in Israel to pray for or to go out and to fight for the people? Instead, they find themselves singing songs probably more like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. O come, thou King of nations, bring an end to all our suffering. Bid every pain and sorrow cease and reign now as our Prince of Peace. They're left wanting. They are left waiting. They are left longing. They are left in expectation as they wait and suffer. And then one night, he appears. Announced by his messengers, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is, what do the angels say? Who is Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the King of the Lord has arrived. And so after considering the success of Israel's kings, or rather the lack of success for Israel's kings, let's now consider the success of Israel's king, the Messiah, the anointed one. Israel's king arrives and spends his first many decades of life preparing for war. And yet he is not preparing by gathering swords and shields. He hasn't come with armies and with the conquest of the nations in mind, but with the invitation of the nations in mind. Even in how Matthew and Luke set up their childhood stories of Jesus and what we typically think of as the Christmas stories, the king arrives not in conquest, but in the outskirts. Not in worldly glory, but in humility. The lower kings of the nations come to bring praise and to worship him, not to, not to their own name and fame, but to his. But they are coming in recognition that he has come to offer forgiveness, to offer friendship and peace with all who would hear him and trust him. Jew and Gentile alike, for those from Israel and from any other nation that might become his people. He himself, like in the language of Psalm 20, becomes the sanctuary, the overlapping place of heaven and earth, fully God and fully man, where realms overlap. He himself is the offering and the sacrifice made on behalf of his people that God might remember I love the old song, Welcome to Our World, that that pseudo-Christmas song where the lyrics say, Fragile finger sent to heal us, tender brow prepared for thorn, tiny heart whose blood will save us, unto us is born. This tender brow of a newborn baby, this forehead that is so soft, you know a baby's forehead, so soft, so welcoming, so delicate, the forehead that just smells like a baby. That forehead will one day have gruesome one-inch thorns driven into it. And he will take the thorns willingly to take your sin upon his head. And the blood from his tiny heart, you can put your ear and cover the entire torso of the baby and hear this baby's heartbeat. That heart will pump its blood out of his head and his hands and his feet until the beating slows and finally empties itself out of the hole in his side and he will spill his blood willingly to give you his righteousness. He himself will become the place and the means of salvation and the very banner of victory, this military flag that is lifted up over his enemies 
in order that he might make his enemies his friends. It is not that lovely people are savable by him, but that those he saves become lovely at the place of his cross, at the place of his victory over his enemies. But in the years and the weeks and the days that are leading up to the cross, I have to imagine that Jesus often prayed Psalm 20. We've often thought about the Psalms as Jesus' own personal prayer book, and we will certainly think about that in, in Psalm 22. But think about Psalm 20, verse 6. Surely Jesus was repeating and reassuring himself of these things as he approached the cross. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Because of God's faithfulness to his promises, because of his faithfulness to his anointed one, because of his faithfulness to his own namesake and for the good of his people, surely God will answer and care for his anointed. But for now, in Psalm 20, on this side of the cross, we, his people, can respond to Jesus' prayer of confident reassurance with our own prayer of confident reassurance. In verse 7, that some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. While the world around us grasps for political power, grasps for greater and stronger military power, God's people can confidently trust that Jesus will build his church and the gates of Hades, the gates of death itself, will not stand against it. He is our captain and our king. Perhaps not in the ways that we would hope for in this age. There will always be opposition and rejection of the king. The cultures and the governments of this world may in times or seasons honor God more or honor God less. But in understanding Jesus' first coming, in building expectation for his first advent, we understand and build even greater expectation for his coming advent, the second advent, when finally and fully every knee will bow, every culture and every government will submit and confess that Christ is Lord, that Christ is King. Verse 8, they, the nations, collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Why? Well, because, verse 7, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As go the king, so go the people. This was a fleeting and terrifying reality for the people of Israel and their kings. If all that they had to trust in was the victory, was the obedience, was the courage of a flawed and fallible and oftentimes fearful king, then there, had, there was much to fear. But for us, for we, the people of Christ our King, there's rest. Because Jesus invites us to be united to him, our sin given to him at the cross, his righteousness given to us in his resurrection, it is finished, past tense. No more worry, no more anxiety, no more distress of, will God save? Does God care for me? Does God love me? Because as long as there is some present tense or future-looking prayer of, God, save the king, please, I hope, because of his righteousness and obedience, some fearful and cowardly and sinful man or woman, king or queen, then there is this, will the king fight and win? I sure hope so. 
But if it is finished, if it is not God, please save the king, but God did save the king. God saved the king. The Lord saved his anointed one. He answered from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. If that is the case, then now rest in his victory. Come to him, all you who are weary, who are heavy laden, and know what it means to now walk with him in the peace and the righteousness that he has fought, he has won, and he has secured for you. It's been said that the natural world, everything around us, the natural world is the survival of the fittest for the sacrifice of the weakest. The strong get to get more and more, accumulate more and more, because we get from the sacrifice of the weak. Oftentimes, we, the weak, are sacrificed for the strong. The Jesus story, on the other hand, is the sacrifice of the fittest, the Christ, for the survival of we who are the weakest. And for those of us who are his, you no longer belong to yourself, but to him. And the rest of the Bible, so much of what we've been thinking about and through in the Gospel of Luke maps out what it looks like to be his disciple, to follow him in life and death. But especially in this Christmas season, amidst all of the busyness, amidst all the parties and the shoppings and the whatever, know the king. Trust the king. Love the king. Rest in the king. He has fought and one for you. His story is far more interesting. His story is far more dynamically life-changing than some like forgettably repeatable episode of The Crown. You might think, oh yeah, I remember this story of Jesus from five years ago or seven years ago. I remember that story, but do I? There's parts of it I remember. No, this is meant for the whole year round. I can keep... Elizabeth II, I can keep any other person, any other character at arm's distance in my life, inviting them in whenever I need to be entertained or whatever. But we cannot just unbox the baby Jesus for four weeks and then stuff him back in the attic when we're done. He demands all of us. He is the king of heaven and earth. We do not invite him into our story, but we submit ourselves that we might enter his. And when we do, the words we sang earlier are really true. They really are. God rest you, merry gentlemen. God give you rest. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings. Oh, good news. Oh, good announcements of comfort and joy to all of you to all of us who rest in the victory of the king. As goes the, as goes the king, so go the people. God saved the king. His success is our success. His death becomes our death. His life becomes our life. And what an opportunity that we have in these coming weeks of Advent, in these next, just, just so fast, a blur of the next few weeks of December, to even further enter into his world and to his story, reminding ourselves that it is his world, it is his kingdom and not ours. Let's pray for God's help now in these coming days and weeks. Oh, Father, we are so thankful that you, oh God, have kept your faithful promises to your anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, our King, the Son of David who 
has done everything that all of the prior kings could not do. You have fought on our behalf. You have obeyed the law perfectly. You have reigned over your people, not using them for your sake, but giving of yourself for theirs. Lord Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to submit even further, more of our lives to you. We pray that you would give us opportunities, that we would carve out opportunities in the coming days and the evenings and the weeks of this busy season to remember your kingdom, to remind ourselves of your coming, coming, your, your incarnation to us in your first coming. You might use these next few days and weeks to build even greater expectation for your second. Lord Jesus, we want to see you. We want to experience the full consummation of your kingdom. We want to experience the uh, full end of our own sin, the full end of our own anxieties and self-worship and all of the things that are corrupting this world in our own hearts and against us by the sin of others. Lord Jesus, we, come, we pray that you would come quickly. Make all things right, just, kind, to the honor of God our Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.